Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. Carry with us, but when it comes to babies in particular, it's so much. It's so difficult to separate yourself from yeah. feeling, like feeling that sense of failure if you aren't meeting this best standard. When that's you know, it's just not practical. Or it is practical, but even if it's working for you and you can exclusively breastfeed until you know however long you want to do it, it's not working for you because it was the best. It's working for you because it's working for you. Welcome to Mother Birth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories, meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everyone, it's Melissa and Laura here today. We are really excited to be having this conversation um, today with a special guest. It's going to be something that is maybe a little bit different than some of the episodes that we've shared in the past. And I think we are going to get into something that is is very often secretive for people, but actually really, really prevalent in our experiences of both motherhood and our own selves. This is actually a topic that I have been wanting since we started the show to have a guest on to talk about body image and you know how, how food and diet culture really affects our experiences of motherhood and plays into the insecurities and the the fears that we have around our own changing bodies and changing identities and then around how we actually parent and like pass on <laughs> these these ideas and these ideologies that we that are actually going to be healthy and and um nourishing to our own children. So today we have Virginia Soul Smith joining us. And Virginia is an author um, who wrote The Eating Instinct, which is a book that is actually coming out this week. So we'll just let Virginia tell us a little bit more about herself. You want to go ahead and do that? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So my name is Virginia Soul Smith. I'm the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, which, um, as Melissa said, is out this week. And I, prior to writing this book, so I've been a journalist for a long time, um, and I've always written about women's health, women's bodies, and how we think about food. And actually, in the beginning of my career, I spent several years writing about that stuff for women's magazines, which can leave a person in a state of some conflict because right. <laughs> men writing a lot of diet-heavy articles, a lot of anti-carb yada yada and you know kind of brought me to a point where I was really like what am I writing what am I telling women to do not feeling great about it and had sort of a reckoning with myself about how I wanted to think about all of that but it wasn't until I became a mother that the pieces the sort of dots really connected for me and so the Mm -hmm. book was inspired by um, an experience I had with my own my first daughter Violet when she was born she was born with a rare congenital heart condition and as a result of the various medical trauma that she experienced, she stopped eating and became dependent on a feeding tube for the better part of Mm -hmm. two years. And during that time, um, 
what was crazy was, so I, you know, I'm happy we can get into a lot more detail about all of that, but what was, you know, what really struck me during that time as I was working so hard to help this baby feel safe with the idea of eating, I realized, you know what, I don't know if I feel safe around food all the time. I don't think many women feel safe around food. And how are we as moms thinking about how to feed our kids and how we talk about food when that's not something anyone has training for before you go into parenthood. In fact, most of us walk into pregnancy with a whole bunch of issues about our bodies and weight and food. Mm -hmm. And we've just navigated all of that. And we've navigated childbirth. And now, okay, also keep this other child alive. By feeding oh, yeah. them and, and lose you know, weight quickly and lose weight at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. what really led to the eating instinct. Wow. That's so I'm, interesting. Cause I've thought so many times about this, you know, and I think usually the conversation goes to like immediately with children is about picky eating. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. really even about these like early formation ideas or approaches to food. It's just like, I don't want my kid to be that kid who like only eats chicken nuggets. Right. And we all want our yeah. kid to be the kid who eats kale smoothies or right. kombucha or <laughs> sushi or all these things that we're kind of conditioned to think like is quote what healthy kids eat. Um, but actually it all goes back to that. It all goes back to those early associations with food and eating that happens with babies. And what we have to understand is that, and what I really learned through the process of working with Violet and then in researching and writing this book is that we're all born knowing how to eat. The actual drive to eat is in instinctive, but very, very, very quickly, it gets disrupted by all this noise and all these preconceived notions about what, quote, healthy eating looks like, the stigma of being a picky eater, all of that starts, you know, basically during pregnancy and doesn't let up. So it's, it's tough for kids and it's tough for parents. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those early moments with your daughter were like? It was, you know, it sounds like she had that condition from birth. Did she have normal eating patterns for a few weeks? And then some of these other things happened that kind of stalled that process. What, how, how did that look for you guys? And then what was your emotional reaction to it? Sure. So, so yeah, let me back up and tell you the whole story. So, um, you know, my pregnancy was a totally typical pregnancy. We had no idea. Her heart, her condition was not, it didn't show up on any of my ultrasounds, any of my prenatal screenings. You know, it was a very low risk, easy, quote, easy. I mean, it was pregnancy, but it was, um, there were, there was no cause for concern. And even when she was born, um, I delivered in a hospital and, you know, she had the newborn screenings. Everyone told us we have this perfect, healthy baby. Everything's fine. Um, we found out later they had neglected to do one of the most important newborn screenings, which is called a pulse oximetry test, where they test the baby's blood oxygen levels to make sure that, um, so when babies are born, pretty much all babies are a little bit purple because, you know, they've just been in the womb, their lungs are still adjusting to breathing and they don't yet have full oxygen circulating their body. But within the first 24 hours, that should even out and they can do this little very simple test where they just put a sensor on the baby's hand and foot and check that the oxygen levels have evened out. Um, the hospital I delivered at neglected to do that test on Violet. And so we were sent home being thinking everything's fine. We have a totally healthy baby. She's totally good. And so I started breastfeeding. Um, and it was hard. Her latch was difficult. I was relying on nipple shields, but it, it was working. It was, you know, it was exhausting. It was all consuming, but she was, you know, she cried, she was hungry, she ate, she fell asleep. Like we were in that rhythm of it for about 
two weeks. She regained her birth weight by her two-week appointment. So, you know, again, they're saying everything's on track. She's totally healthy. Everything's perfect. Mm. Sometime in the third week, um, her her feeds started getting shorter and shorter. She suddenly went from, you know, in the beginning, you know, I was nursing for 45 minutes at a time and it was, you know, just felt like nothing, you know, all I did was nurse and nurse and nurse. And in the third week, suddenly it was like 20 minutes and then 15 Mm. minutes and then eight minutes, you know, the feeds were getting, and I thought, oh, we're getting better at it. (laughs) This is so great. I can shower, you know, this is okay. It's working. Um, you know, I didn't need the nipple shield anymore. It felt like things were on an upswing. Um, but she was eating less and less and she was sleeping a lot. I mean, newborns sleep a lot, but she was sleeping a lot, like nine hours at night. Um, and everyone's saying, oh my gosh, you hit the jackpot. How lucky you have a newborn that sleeps so much. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, there's this part of my brain that's going, something's not right. This feels weird. But most of my brain is thinking, I have no idea what normal is with a newborn. I've never done this before. I'm still right. recovering. You know, my body is going through everything it's going through. I guess this is what it's supposed to be. I should stop. I shouldn't worry. I shouldn't worry. Everything must be fine. Um, mm. Then the night before she was uh, hit her one month birthday, um, you know, we, she went to bed. She slept, I think, six hours, woke up barely latched on and was back asleep again. And I was also so exhausted. I just, you know, went back to sleep. And then we slept in until, um, I think it was like eight, eight o'clock in the morning when we woke up, which felt crazy late. You know, we'd been waking up much earlier, obviously with a newborn. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, she, so she didn't really eat at all overnight and she slept in late. So I, I went to pump because I was, you know, really needed to pump. And then we were sort of rushing out of the house because we had to get to her four-month checkup. I mean, her sorry, her one-month checkup, her four-week checkup. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm saying to my husband, she didn't really nurse. And then when she did wake up, she latched on for a second and pulled off again. And I'm that, you know, why isn't she hungrier? It's, you know, she hasn't really eaten all night. And he's thinking, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to the doctor. It's fine. We went into the pediatrician's office. They weighed her. She'd lost, she was lower than her birth weight. Oh man. And that, so that was a moment of, okay, something happened, <laughs> you know, and we just couldn't believe it. The doctor came in laughing like, well, that must be a mistake. Let's, let's reweigh her. That's wrong. But it wasn't, she'd lost um, a bunch of weight. And then the doctor looked at her and she said, she's dusky, which meant her fingertips and her lips were purple. Um, and not purple, like blueberry purple, like it's just sort of this sort of like grayish purple, which I had noticed off and on. But again, not, no, I just thought she was cold. And so I'm saying to the doctor, oh, but I've got a hat. I'll just put a hat on her. It'll, you know, it'll be fine. And she said, no, it's, you know, we need to see a cardiologist right away. And Mm -hmm. amazingly, there was a cardiologist in that same office that we were able to grab who gave her an echocardiogram. And before I knew what was happening, we were in an ambulance on our way to the hospital. Um, In the doctor's office that morning, they checked her blood oxygen level. And so your blood oxygen level should be 95 to 100%, meaning every blood molecule you have is attached to an oxygen molecule. And in the the doctor's office that morning, she was at like 75%, which is very bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. By the end of the day, she was at 18%. So her her heart was in failure. Her heart was shutting down. Her blood oxygen was plummeting. And that's why she hadn't been nursing because her heart had been shutting down for the past two weeks. And so she had been getting more and more tired and weak and nursing for babies is like a cardiovascular workout. So if you're in heart failure, you can't eat. (laughs) It's that simple. So we were tremendously lucky. I mean, I should back up and say pulse oximetry screenings are really important. We should never have been sent home with that baby, but 
since we missed that initial test, we were incredibly lucky. We were in the doctor's office that morning. We were in an ambulance, you know, within an hour and she was in surgery that night and they were able to save her life um, with a critical surgery that night to stabilize her heart. Hmm. So we, you know, that was pretty amazing to get through that. Um, I was in shock that day. And I remember thinking at one point, I should be nursing her. And I even had the thought of maybe this hospital isn't very breastfeeding friendly because they are asking right. me to nurse her. She was on a ventilator at this point. I mean, you can't nurse a baby on a breathing tube. I was incomplete. I was, this was the yeah. shock talking and, and the, the panic, yeah. but it doesn't set in right away. You panic stays at arm's distance because you're just thinking, okay, they told me to go here. Okay. They told me to get in this ambulance. Okay. She's not eating, but you know, it must be because like, I, you just can't put it all together at once. Um, mm-hmm. But the next day they sat us down in the hospital and they explained that she had these series of congenital heart defects um, that, so the way heart defects work when babies are in utero, the heart functions because there's all these extra holes that the heart has that enables blood to flow. But over the course Mm -hmm. of the first month of life, um, these these small holes that all babies are born with close up as the heart begins to function with oxygen circulating from the lungs. And in Violet's case, as those holes closed up, the fact that her heart was missing these other parts meant that it could no longer circulate blood and oxygen around her body. So that's why she'd gone into heart failure. And so we learned that it was going to be a pretty long road of three open heart surgeries staggered out over the first three years of her life. And she had the first one the following week. Um, And that, you know, this is going to be something we live with the rest of our lives. This isn't something they cure. This is something that we always will be monitoring. And there's various things, but that if these surgeries go well, these kids can live a really good, normal life. So that's what we were told in the first meeting. What they didn't tell us and what didn't become clear until really over the course of the next couple of weeks is that babies who undergo this kind of medical trauma and experience, um, you know, the struggle to eat, the struggle to breathe, all the tubes that came at her being put on a ventilator while she was still conscious, you know, all of the medical interventions, which are Mm -hmm. so, so necessary and so important. And I'm so grateful they happened at the same time, their trauma and they traumatized the baby. And so Violet developed what's known as an oral aversion where she fought anything coming near her mouth because in that little infant mind, you know, when it comes to sort of your hierarchy of needs, when you're at the front lines of survival like that, your body's going to prioritize breathing over everything else, right? Because breathing, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can't breathe, you've got nothing. And so eating was getting in the way of breathing. It was too much work. It was tiring her out. And anything coming in her mouth felt like it was going to get in the way of breathing. So she was totally shut down on the idea that anything would come near her, Mm -hmm. near her mouth. So, um, I never really successfully breastfed her again. Um, we tried over the course of the next two months, um, but it was, it was brutal. It was, you know, putting her on to a gag and scream. I would try to hold her head. She would gag and, you know, it was incredibly painful for both of us. Um, and because we'd been told not to introduce a bottle in that first month, you know, cause you're always worried about nipple confusion and all that. Um, she hadn't accepted a bottle prior to going into the hospital. Cause I think we'd only offered it maybe one time. So when we first introduced a bottle, it was in a hospital in that medical setting when, the tubes and everything is going on. And so she wanted nothing to do with the bottle either, because that was just Mm -hmm. another thing, you know, another piece of plastic coming at her. (laughs) So, uh, so she wouldn't accept a bottle. So she, you know, they put her on a feeding tube and she relied on the feeding tube for all of her nutrition for her, uh, 
you know, that's, that's how she ate as a baby was through a tube, first a tube that was threaded into her nose and down her throat to her stomach. And then, um, after a few months of living with that, which is a really difficult tube to live with because the babies can cough it out and pull it out and it's, it's pretty miserable. Um, we had a permanent feeding tube implanted in her stomach and, and that's how we fed her. Um, while we worked on trying to figure out how do you get a kid over an oral aversion and how do you teach them to feel safe around eating? Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah. So did I, I, I went on a long journey there, but no, I mean, I'm happy to talk more about any of that. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to share. So I want to come back to my original question. How were you, you know, you've kind of described the initial shock and kind of, disorientation of the experience, you know, then, then of course there's panic and, and all the other things overall. And in the, you know, in the long term, over those months of her having the, um, the nasal feeding tube, and then, you know, having the permanent feeding tube implanted, how are you coping with all of this emotionally thinking specifically of the feeding part of it? Obviously there's a lot else I mean, going on. It, eating is the most fundamental thing. I mean, feeding is the most fundamental thing a mother does with her baby, right? I mean, that's what you do the second they're born. That's, you know, it's pretty much the only way you can bond with an infant. So, or it feels like that in the beginning. And that's, it's not true, but it does feel that way. And so I felt like an enormous failure. I felt like I had um, completely failed this child. First, I was struggling with the guilt that she had this condition in the first place and going back over every minute of my pregnancy thinking what did i do wrong what did i eat what did i expose myself to what you know was there something that triggered this that caused you know a 10 weeks gestation her heart didn't divide into four chambers like most hearts do so you know there was that whole guilt to work through tremendous tremendous shame and then there was the shame of i had a baby my own child in my house with me for a month and i had no idea her heart was failing. I had no idea when I was feeding her that she was, she was struggling, that she was losing weight. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see all of these signs and symptoms. And so I lived with that shame. That took me, oh gosh, probably two years before I could even say it out loud, that shame. I mean, that was, I was convinced if I said it out loud, people would say, yes, absolutely. You almost killed your baby. We can't even look at you as a mother. Like you, you know, that you did this. It took um, a good amount of therapy and a lot of time to be able to say, okay, that was, you know, I was a new mom. I was working with the information I had, you know, any parent would have made the same mistake. Um, but, uh, so there was that. So yeah, so there was the shame of dealing with, you know, did I cause this? No, the answer is absolutely not. I did not cause this. Then there was the shame of how did I miss this? Again, not my fault, but that was that was there. And then there was the third failure of I can't nurse, I can't bottle feed, I can't feed her, you know, babies are supposed to find the act of feeding comforting. They're supposed to crave their mother's milk. I thought my daughter found no comfort in me. I mean, it was, Mm. it was terrifying. And, you know, what helped was seeing that there are many ways to bond with a baby. You don't have to breastfeed to bond with a baby. Absolutely not. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to do. I'm very grateful. I was able to do it um, later on with my second daughter, but um, absolutely, you know, I mean, as Violet did, you know, start to hit those milestones and we got her first smiles and she became more interactive. I could tell I was building this tremendous bond with her and that, what we were going through navigating these surgeries and this medical world and all the feeding therapies and everything, you know, that was creating a bond that is, 
you know, is in and of itself a really strong and beautiful thing. So as I got to know her better, I could see that we, you know, we are incredibly close today. And, you know, I do believe a lot of that was forged in those moments. But yeah, in the initial months, it was just tremendous shame and guilt and fear. Those were the dominant Mm -hmm. themes. Yeah, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. I think that it's so interesting to hear so many mothers share that, you know, when there's extreme adversity in one form or another in those early, early, you know, months or years of childhood, that even though in those trenches, it can feel like it's, it's all uphill and, you know, how, how is this even, like you said, on a bonding level, like doesn't even feel like this is how it's supposed to be. But I think that so many times we hear women describe that they have such an incredibly close bond with their children because if you think about it, the amount of time and care and devotion and like attention you had to give Violet because of what she was going through physically, um, you know, both initially with those surgery, you know, with discovering everything and and the trauma of the surgeries, but then with, you know, helping her every day with, you know, with all of these other things, it's like, that is a great, great deal of focused attention that that facilitates bonding. Yes. Yes. No, it does. And, and the other piece of it is as I learned more about the factors that go into creating the oral aversion and, um, you know, just why she was so resistant to eating, even though it was counterproductive in the sense that we were reliant on a feeding tube and, you know, obviously we want our child to eat. I learned, as I learned more about what went into it, I realized I actually had a tremendous amount of respect for her because it was, it was such a strong self-preservation instinct. It was her knowing what she needed. She, you know, she was a tiny little infant. She couldn't speak. She couldn't communicate with us, but she protected herself the only way that she kind of knew how to do it, you know, was she knew that's not safe. That's not safe. I'm not going to do it. And the truth is we want our kids to know that, you know, I want her to always know that and listen to that instinct in herself. And so as I learned more about how eating instincts develop and how the sort of, you know, I, I realized like, of course I want her to, to preserve that. And, you know, while learning that she can feel safe with food, but, you know, and having a good relationship with food, of course, but but I, I could really respect where she was coming from. So our relationship never felt like, and it wasn't forged in adversity. You know, I, I felt like I had this real respect for how she'd mm. gotten to that place. And, you know, in helping her move past it, it was more about playing to that strength that she had. And I still see that spirit in her today. She was a kid who really knows who she is and what she needs. And I think that's like, I have, gosh, I admire that. I think we'd all, you know, <laughs> something everybody needs to have. So, yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful to watch that unfold. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. And just, and I wanted to ask too, you know, y'all are going through this as a family and um, how did your partner feel about all this and kind of what was that response like for them? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, my husband, Dan, I mean, he was, you know, we were in it together. We co-parent in a very 50-50 way. So you know, every time we're, we are in the hospital with Violet, we take turns sleeping by her every night, you know, so someone's always with her, you know, we went to all the appointments, the feeding therapy appointments together, we worked through it all together. Um, And I think, uh, I mean, you know, he would have to speak directly to what his experience was. But I think, you know, it also forged our partnership, we'd been together for quite a long time before we had 
children. Um, but it took our relationship to a new level. You know, what he did that I'll always be grateful for is so in that first hospital stay, um, when I was still trying to nurse and so I was pumping around the clock trying to you know, keep up my supply, which was dwindling very quickly under all the stress and trauma. But I was like chained, you know, chained to the breast pump basically. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to be the one to drop the feeding tube down her nose. I'm going to be the one to run the feeding pump and like know that by heart. And that's, you know, you're doing Mm -hmm. this piece. I'm going to do this piece. And so we each had our, you know, and we both learned everything, but he was like, I physically cannot pump the milk. (laughs) So, um, you know, I'm going to do all these other things. And, you know, without that, you know, it was too much for one person. There's no way I could have done it all by myself. So, you know, having that sense of partnership. And what I will say now, having had a quote, more typical experience with a newborn where I was breastfeeding exclusively for a few months, um, I'm in a weird way, really grateful to the feeding tube because it ensured that we parented 50-50 from the start. Whereas when one parent is breastfeeding exclusively, it is much more difficult for the partner to take a totally equal role because you're just not doing that one huge time consuming piece of it. And so, you know, the fact that we were both mixing up formula and measuring milliliters and putting it in this tube and, you know, I mean, the tube was like a nightmare to live with. It's incredibly labor intensive, but it was shared labor. And so it enabled us to approach parenting from this totally shared standpoint that, really permeates how we handle things today in terms of who's taking her to karate class or swim lesson or, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it laid a really strong foundation for our family that I'm quite grateful for. Hmm. That is huge. And I think, you know, something that we explore quite a bit on the show with, with guests, you know, on, on a variety of topics is I think when it comes to, I think when it comes to parenting with a partner, I don't know if the goal is necessarily equal as it is that it's it's working <laughs> and that yeah, it's definitely. working for everyone. It's not just one, working for one partner or working for the baby. It's working for everyone. Um, and I think that, you know, especially when you're faced with, you know, circumstances that, that take a lot of em- emotional and physical work and a, and a serious toll because of those things. Like if, if you can't share that, whatever, you know, whether at the end of the day, it fall, if the, the chips fall exactly equally or not at the end of the day, if you feel alone, I mean, motherhood is such an isolating experience for so many women. And if you mm-hmm. add to that, you know, baseline experience, dealing with, you know, medical crisis and medical trauma and, you know, ongoing difficult circumstances like that. I mean, that is, that is a recipe for, for burnout and depression and anxiety and, you know, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. It's really, really amazing to hear that you guys were able to find that, that balance between the two of you and to share that season with her in such a profound way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you were able to feed her your pumped breast milk through the tube for a few a uh, few months. Um, you know, really that first day when I was going through the the you know that very initial trauma, it had it had long um, it had, it was long lasting, and so you know I, I remember thinking that night, that first day in the hospital, that night they, they said, Oh, do you need to pump? And I remember thinking, why don't I feel uncomfortable? I don't feel like I need to pump. I mean, I did. And some came out, but all, but that the shock of that day really decimated Mm. my supply. And I was never able to build it back up because she was not able to nurse. So, you know, I was relying only on a pump basically to try to keep my supply going. And 
you know, everybody's different. Some, I know moms who've been in similar situations and they were able to exclusively pump for a long time. Um, for me, the supply kept going down and down and down. Um, and it got to a point. So I stopped trying to nurse her, um, when she was about two, no, two and a half, three months old. And I think I stopped pumping by the four month mark because, I was getting so little. We were having to supplement with formula anyway. And I just realized the day that I realized I was done pumping was I was after the first hospital stay, which was 21 days and we were back home and, um, I'd stopped nursing, but we were, I was still trying to pump and she was waking up from a nap and I was strapped into the pump trying to like furiously pump before I then ran formula and breast milk through the feeding tube to feed her on the feeding tube and try to use a bottle. So like, you know, our feeding thing was like six different steps because we were like using the pump, trying to feed orally. And I was having to pause too many things. And so she was crying to be picked up and I physically couldn't pick her up because I was strapped into the breast pump. And I just thought this has to go. This is now keeping me from my baby who really needs me to be holding her. I mean, she spent weeks in a hospital bed when I couldn't hold her. Like, I can't have this machine between me and her. We already Mm -hmm. have one machine in the middle of the feeding process. We can't have this breast pump in the middle of it too. Um, And so I put it away and we just did formula from there out. And it was much, much better for us because the, you know, the stress and you know, it was also the other thing is a baby on a feeding tube starts sleeping through the night much earlier because they're not waking for hunger. You just kind of feed them on a slow drip all night, which is profoundly abnormal and strange. However, it's, you know, the one sort of like silver lining you have in that very exhausting period. And so for me to be setting an alarm to wake up and pump every two or three hours in the night, it was like, this doesn't make sense. I should sleep when the baby is sleeping. And if she's going to sleep all night, I should sleep all night because the days are long enough. So yeah. Yeah. And that, but that was a hard, it was a really hard fraught decision. I struggled tremendously with the decision to stop breastfeeding and with the decision to stop pumping. Um, because there's so much pressure on both those things. And because, you know, and in retrospect, I look back and I think it should have been so simple. I should have been doing anything I could to promote my self-care and to, you know, make our lives easier when things were so complicated. But, you know, the breast is best messaging is so intense and the guilt around that is so strong that I had to really work through that um, pretty intensely before I could let it go without feeling like, okay, here's yet another on my list of failures. Here's another one, you know, Hmm. which I now completely don't see that as I think it was a really smart choice to switch to formula um, and give that, you know, give that respite to all of us. But at the time it was not that cut and dried. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we have had several women share about the decision to either move to formula or supplement. And no matter how much we want to do this, fed is best and really believe in the idea of listening to your intuition. I love how you express that. It's, you know, I came to this point where I realized this is a, this is actually a barrier. It's not a bonding point anymore. Right. Right. It was another, can be really empowering. You know, there's a lot of women who that, that is really what the decision is made on. And I think, you know, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and, or from your own experience and say, well, you know, while that might be true, like it's still best ball, but, you know, fill in the blank of whatever they want to say. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I love the idea yeah. of like, I'm listening and I'm looking at my relationship with this child. And it is telling me that we are, we're actually, like you said, it's not, now it's not a bonding. It's actually a wall. Right. Right. I love yeah. The idea. And we had to break through that wall. Yeah. I love yeah. that idea. Yeah. And it made it a lot simpler, you know, when my second daughter came along, um, she doesn't have a heart condition, was born, you know, totally healthy. Everything was a lot more straightforward. Um, And breastfeeding 
was much more effortless with her. And so I could have, if I'd wanted to, I could still be exclusively breastfeeding her. I mean, it worked. We could have done it forever if we wanted to, but I reached a point and this, you know, this is my choice. And, um, but I reached a point at about the four to five month mark with her where I thought, you know what, like, again, I think I can give more to her and to our whole family if we go to formula and bottles, because it'll allow my partner to take a more active role. It'll, you know, allow us to navigate bedtime with two kids in an easier way. Cause it's not like I always have to do the baby, you know, it, it just, it, it became clear. So I think, again, it's an example of having had the traumatic version of the experience, which I wouldn't wish on anyone, but having gone to that place with it before I was able this time to be much more clear eyed about, okay, what, what really works for us? Like, let's forget what I'm being told by all these mommy bloggers and, you know, the noise in the internet and all of that, like what's really working for our family. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Breastfeeding was great. I'm so glad I did it, but I'm done with it now. And we're going to do formula and that's going to be awesome too. And it has been. So I think that's, but it takes, I think, especially for first time moms, having that strength of your own convictions and being able to trust that is so so hard because we're told at every turn that we're doing something wrong. So tuning out that noise is such a, such a difficult process. Yeah. It really is such a deeply personal choice. And I think that what is often not accounted for is just the, how, you know, how unique each family's situation is and the intuition it takes to make those choices based on what's actually working, you know, whether, you know, I mean, we know Mm -hmm. people who, both partners get up every night for, you know, the feedings. And we know people who don't do that. And we know people who take turns, you know, 50, 50. And we know people who, you know, they, one does all of this and one does all of that. And it's just, it really, at the end of the day, like finding what works for you around feeding, around, you know, around bonding, around sleep. I think these are all really, really can be really controversial topics. And I think that it's, you know, where, where it falls apart is like on the, on the community support level where, you know, we don't, I don't think, you know, it doesn't have to be either or like we, to promote breastfeeding and even to say that we know breast milk is, is, you know, best for babies is, does not have to mean that we, (laughs) that people can't make choices based on what's working for them. And it's the mutually exclusive part of it that, that becomes Mm -hmm. so, controversial and so harmful and hurtful to families and to, and to, especially to mothers who feel so guilty and so caught up in the expectations and, of the, you know, that they had of themselves and that culture has of them and all of these different things. It's really, really difficult to navigate. Yeah. I sometimes wish we didn't have that word best. Like, I think that word is so problematic because mm-hmm who doesn't want to do what's best for their child? Like best, of course you want the best, you want the best. And we emphasize that. And the truth is like, there is no best, like every, you know, with like, it's such a, a empty term and it's an empty standard when in fact, like what works for your family is what matters, what, you know, what fits with your family, what fits with your baby and your own needs and how you want to parent. Like this is such a specific thing. And you know, nobody does what's quote best in every aspect of our lives. Like, have you never broken a speeding limit? Have you never like not flossed one night? Like nobody, <laughs> like these platonic ideals of what's best for health is this sort of, it's, it's a very, you know, nobody lives their lives in that way. Right. That's not actually practical. So well, if we can get away from feeling like we've somehow failed because we're not doing the quote 
fast. Like, I don't have guilt if I skip flossing for a night. Like, this is not something we should carry with us. But when it comes to babies in particular, it's so much, it's so difficult to separate yourself from feeling like feeling that sense of failure if you aren't meeting this best standard when that's, you know, it's just not practical or it is practical. But even if it's working for you and you can exclusively breastfeed until, you know, however long you want to do it it's not working for you because it was the best. It's working for you because it's working for you. Yeah. That's a great distinction. I like that a lot. Yeah. So Virginia, I know that a big part of where your book came from is actually kind of the road back. If we can use that term, um, you know, your, you said your daughter was on a feeding tube for almost two years and then, and then what happened after that? And how did, you know, the, the following couple of years unfold and how did that lead you to, to the work that you're so passionate about now? Yeah. So, you know, it was probably midway through the process of working with Violet on the feeding tube that I realized this was a bigger story. And I'm trying to think when, you know, a couple of moments stand out. So, so she never took to a bottle or or breast, as I said, you know, all her formula was taken through the feeding tube. But once we started introducing solids, we started to make a little more progress, I think, because solid foods didn't have all the same connotations, you know, of the bottle and breast and a baby can experiment with solid foods. I mean, obviously, the goal is to get them to put them in their mouth. But at first, you can just like, touch them and lick them and sniff them and smear them on your face. And, you know, like, it's a more... Um, you know, there was just more options for her as a way of engaging with food. So I started, we started to see this progress of she would start to take solid foods and um, a little bit at a time, not enough to start dropping the tube feeds, um, but enough that we could see, okay, there's going to be a way off this. Um, And I started researching approaches to really help a kid with solid foods. And I had thought, you know, prior to all of this, when I was pregnant with Violet, I thought, oh, I I love baby led weaning. We'll do baby led weaning with all the finger foods. Um, And in many ways, that was still very helpful to us because I think the spoon had the risk of spoon feeding a baby, had the risk of feeling as forceful as trying to get her to take the Mm. bottle. I mean, we were, you know, we had to empower Violet to do this herself. Um, we knew that was going to be essential to getting her over this hump was like, she needed to realize she needed to eat and she needed to realize she could feed herself and sort of control that process. Um, but, uh, but baby led weaning, you know, it didn't work entirely because she, because she didn't have that early training of the oral mechanics that bottle or breastfeeding teaches a baby. She didn't know how to move bites around her mouth. There were a lot of things with textures, like um, all, you know, babies typically learn to eat on this sort of trajectory of moving from the, you know, the thin liquid of milk up to, you know, like all these, there's like a sort of natural thing that gets them to the point where they can they have the dexterity of, to, you know, yeah, the oral dexterity. Right. Yeah. The oral dexterity. Yeah. So she was, you know, lacking on the oral dexterity front because of not having that early skills. And so we needed to do quite a lot of feeding therapy to help her with that. Um, and we were lucky to work with a absolutely fabulous feeding mm-hmm. therapist who could help us with the oral mechanics. Um, did you? Oh, but at oh, the same time, oh, I was just gonna say, but at the same time, um, we had to work on our family mealtime relationship mm-hmm. and and figuring out how to offer food in a very low pressure way, yeah. because that was key to making her. You know, we we're all about building trust and safety yeah. with food, and so that's when I discovered um, the work of. Oh Ellen my gosh! Satter, so that was what I was about to ask you: is at what point yeah, did you discover so Ellen Satter? <laughs> Yes. So division of responsibility. Um, I actually, 
a feeding therapist who works with kids like Violet, um, whose name is Suzanne Evans Morris. Um, I attended a workshop of hers in Virginia in 2014, I want to say. Violet would have been like a little over a year. And so we were at that point of like, she's doing some solids, but not enough to, you know, how do we like actually like take this all the way. Um, and I went to Suzanne's workshop and she works a lot with the division of responsibility, but in terms of tweaking it for kids, because so the yeah, principle tell, of the division of responsibility, of course. So Ellen Satter um, is a feeding therapist and family therapist and nutritionist who developed this model called division of responsibility and feeding. And the premise is uh, parents are in charge of what foods are offered when they are offered, like the schedule of when meals and snacks happen, um, and where meals take place. Like you, you know, you want to eat mostly at a table, not sort of like grazing around the house, that kind of thing. So you kind of provide this framework of how eating Mm -hmm. happens, but the child is completely in charge of how much they eat and really whether or not they eat. Like if you offer a lunch with three or four different foods, they may eat only one of those foods. They may eat all four. They may, you know, they may eat them in a weird order. They're in charge of all of that. You don't interfere with the child's intake. Um, They regulate their intake because they are the best judge of their hunger cues and their fullness cues and knowing how much food their body needs at any given meal. Now, it's a brilliant, brilliant philosophy. It works incredibly well. However, how do you put it into play with a baby who's on a feeding tube who hasn't felt hunger since she was like two weeks old? (laughs) So, you know, how do we, so we had to really figure out how do you trust a baby to know when she's hungry and full if she's really shown you repeatedly, she doesn't feel those sensations and she'll ignore those sensations because of the trauma. So for us getting to divisional responsibility, I'd been reading about it for a long time, but I couldn't, like, I was like, how do we trust her? Basically, yeah. like I had to learn how to trust her. Um, and so going to a workshop with Suzanne Evans Morris, who really um, focuses on putting it into place with these kids was super helpful because she helped us really look at like increasing Violet's comfort factor at the table, making sure she was in a supportive high chair, kind of helping us figure out how to build the trust and understand that just her watching us eat food over and over, watching us enjoy meals was, was really, that was how it would happen. Like she needed to be exposed to other people enjoying food safely and seeing that that is like a part of life. That is how we gather together multiple times a day. And this is how we take care of ourselves so that she could start to trust that food was safe and something she could experiment Mm. with. And then at the same time, we started to gradually ease down her feeding tube feeds to create some physical hunger. So essentially, you know, kind of starved her off. Like we dropped a meal here and there to let her get hungry. And then hopefully when she was hungry, she would eat enough to experience satiation and start to put it together. And it did work. It took a few months, but it did really work. Um, But at that point in the process is when I realized, okay, if I have to model healthy eating with my, and I don't mean healthy eating like salads. I mean, like I have to model being able to eat a full meal and enjoy and feel good about my food. I have to be able to eat and enjoy a full meal and feel good about my food. Like I have to really be able to do this. And so that's when adult eating issues came into play because that's when I realized we have to, you know, Dan and I and anyone eating with us like has to be able to kind of feel good around food. And, you know, there were just a million small moments where I realized we weren't quite there. Like one time a, um, a babysitter who was working with Violet and we had like sort of cubes of cheese on her tray. And she said to Violet, you know, Oh, Violet, you know, you, you're so lucky you get to eat cheese. I can't eat cheese. It makes me fat. Mm. Or, um, 
you know, and she just was joking and talking about food the way women talk about food, right? We all say things like, oh, I can't have that second cupcake, you know, like I got to get into a bikini next week. Or, you know, we all have that sort of shaming, apologizing way of navigating food and not feeling like, you know, women often feel like they have to apologize for being hungry. You know, they often feel like just the act of being hungry earlier than they thought they should be or more hungry than they think they should be is something that we can't feel okay about. So to teach a baby or toddler, yes, hungry is, you know, being hungry is good. And here's what you do. If you feel hungry, you eat and you feel great. And this is how it works. It's not that simple for most of us. So that's what led me to start exploring all the topics I cover in the book, which really starts with Violet's story, but then goes off to explore eating, you know, a lot, a lot of people's stories of learning to eat. So I talked to people who, um, you know, various types of different eating disorders, recovering from those and learning to eat again, um, folks who've had weight loss surgery and have to learn to eat in a totally different way. Um, and it really gets into the science of hunger and how we experience hunger and satiation and how we override those cues when we get we let all this noise of diet culture and the wider food world tell us that they know better than we do when it comes to listening to our bodies. Yeah. You know, I was introduced to Ellen Satter because, I mean, my son didn't have any medical issues that that led to anything, but he and I just had this really, really anxious relationship around food. And even though he was a good mm-hmm. eater, quote unquote, in the sense of, you know, any anyone anyone that knows my kid knows he's not the kid that'll only eat a quesadilla, yet at the same time, every meal felt like a battle. And it felt like me trying to assert dominance over him and trying to say like, Mm -hmm. no, this Mm -hmm. is what it looks like to eat a healthy meal. Like this is, you know, these are the kinds of things we eat in our family. Like we aren't picky eaters. Like that's, you know, these are things that Mm -hmm. growing up for me, I don't necessarily feel like my mom specifically said those things, but yet I was raised in a farm setting where we ate, you know, a lot of the same foods again and again and again, because they were foods that we raised on our farm. And so there wasn't a ton of variety, but it was also like, this is what's for dinner. I'm so sorry if you don't think you like, if you think you don't like lentils and barley, like we're having lentils and barley. So that really, that really, you know, impressed a lot on me as a child. And, and I wanted to recreate that same thing in my own family, but I just didn't know how to do that. So for me, it was like, okay, well, if I want my kid to like lentils and barley, I have to force him to eat lentils and barley. Like that's just... I didn't know how else to make it happen. Plus I had my own history of, you know, eating issues and, you know, an eating disorder in my teens and early twenties and, you know, Mm -hmm. like had come so far personally, but really just didn't know how to translate this to my relationship with my child. And I had, you know, Googled frantically many times, like what to do. And, and Ellen Satter came up and, and, and the division of responsibility, it's so interesting because I have really found that when you have really established patterns with a particular child, that it's hard to break those patterns, even when ideologically you have kind of like, you've shifted. You you think of it differently in a very like cellular way. And yet the patterns are so strong that it's hard to, mm-hmm. it's hard to actually shift the dynamic. And so it's, I feel like it's been years and years of, you know, my son is nine now. And I feel like we're still constantly like when it comes to the division of responsibility with him, I'm like, I still feel this urge, this pressure, this like pattern to say like, no, 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 you have to finish, you know, you have to eat like this amount of your salad and you have to do this and blah, blah, blah. Whereas with my daughter, who I have a very different 
relationship with. And, and, you know, I love how Ellen talks about the feeding relationship sort of as this, this basic component of a child's experience of the world, you know, their, their first few years, whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, or whether you're obviously in your case, you're your child is on a feeding tube for a couple of years, this, it's still the first, like probably 10 years of their life where this feeding relationship Mm -hmm. is so prominent and, and factors so much into how they see the world and see their body and see food and see all of these things. And so with my daughter, I like the division of responsibility is not hard for me with her because I, I actually reread Ellen Satter's book when I was pregnant with her because I kind of wanted to just re-remind myself, even when it came to breastfeeding, um, and I, you know, I, I breastfed both of my kids with for varying lengths of time, and and you know, supplemented at different points in time, which I struggled with hugely with my son Aiden because I felt like a failure. When I had to supplement my daughter Etni, I didn't feel like a failure because I had come to this different point in understanding, like what was the point of nourishing her? It wasn't like you were saying, it wasn't what was best. It was what was working, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that trust. I mean, I think exactly what you're saying, once those patterns are established, you're, you're rebuilding that trust around the food and around the feeding relationship. And it is not, um, it's, it's a slow process for, for a lot of us. I mean, it's definitely, um, yeah, I can really relate to a lot of what you're saying there because I think it takes, a long time. And it's very hard because we have to constantly kind of catch ourselves from falling into that old pattern and that old mm-hmm. way of thinking. And, you know, it's, it takes a long time. Yeah. It really yeah does. We have a lifetime of, of feeling the way we feel about food and the way we feel about our bodies. I love the other yeah. piece of, yeah. of Ellen Satter's work that I love and that I really hear in what you're saying is this idea that like our relationship to food is not just about the food that we eat and how it nourishes our bodies. It's actually like our relationship to others and how we experience the pleasure of being with others. And so facilitating that as a parent is actually just as, if not more important than like, did you have, you know, 30% of your plate was greens and did you have like this amount of protein? It's like, are you raising a child that looks forward to eating because of the time that they will spend in like, in like in, in a pleasurable moment with others, like that is so powerful to think about. And it's so much more of a useful skill for them to develop as a child, because, you know, that's how they're going to navigate the world as adults. I mean, the thing about nutrition and, you know, nutrition has its place. Obviously we want to shoot for sort of a basic, you know, variety of foods in our kids' diets and cover, you know, some of them should come from plants, like all those things are good things. But um, the rules about nutrition change all the time. Basically, every decade, there's a new food we're terrified of eating. And there's new foods that we think are the best foods to ever eat. So if you are raising a child right now, and drilling into them that sugar is evil, and carbs are evil, but kale is wonderful, and avocado is wonderful, that's only going to be useful until all the rules about nutrition change again. (laughs) Because at some point, there's going to be a new set of foods that they, you know, and that, and they're going to have to regroup and, and they're going to carry those same good food, bad food lists with them and then just keep adding to and be, that. And be so, so they're confused. just going to navigate yeah. the world. 
and be so confused and navigate the world thinking about food as good and bad and, you know, evil and righteous at all times. Whereas if you focus on promoting the idea that food is the basis of this way of connecting with other people, that food is a way of caring for your body and listening to your body, and you don't get hung up in number of bites or what, you know, how many things on the plate are green or all of that stuff, you're actually teaching them how to care for themselves and how to experience the world. And that's, you know, that's something that they can then use and adapt as they need to Mm -hmm. through the rest of their life. So that's, yeah, that's also why I'm a huge fan of her approach and and we've worked really hard to instill it at our house. Um, And I will say, you know, it, it is second nature to me now not to look at Violet's plate and not to worry too much about what she's eating or not eating. And often, you know, she's, five. And so a lot of meals are two bites of this and I'm done and I'm off to play. And that's, you know, that's where she is right now. And I think that's completely age appropriate and completely understandable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, we just don't stress about it, but I do see a lot of people with kids around the same age, you know, holding their kids to the table, counting bites, fixating on this, that, and the other. And, you know, I just, it does make me worried because I know what it's like to obsess over the metrics of how your child eats, because that's what I had to do all that time on the feeding tube. It was all about how many milliliters could we get into her before she would throw up and how was her weight gain corresponding to how much we were feeding her and how many calories per ounce should we make the formula? And I, you know, I lived that way with her. It was basically like being on a weird diet and it wasn't, there was no nourishment there. There was no connection or intimacy. Mm -hmm. It was this mechanical way of tending to a person in this very medicinal concrete, you know, Mm -hmm. plastic way versus actually connecting over food. And so, you know, at this point, I, I am so grateful that she's gotten to a place where she does enjoy food and get excited to eat and experiences her hunger because of having gone through that earlier stuff. I'm so grateful for all of that. Like, you know, I'll seek connection over anything we're eating. It's not about the the nutrition on the plate. You know, I've just really left those metrics behind. And it's much more about, you know, are we getting to sit down together at the end of the day and enjoy each other and have some conversation? And, you know, that's, that's what I want out of meals. Like that's, that's my whole goal with her. But, but there are certainly times where we've gone back and forth and, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely all the kinks are ironed out and it's totally, you know, easy over here. But every time we hit a roadblock, I've realized it's, it's mostly because some external source, be it a doctor or some diet culture thing that I've read or some, you know, some external source has gotten into my brain and said, you're doing it wrong. This isn't how she should eat. She needs to eat like Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. And anytime I can turn off those rules and that outside stuff and just focus on who my child is and, what she's telling me she needs, it all, all the problems yeah. go away. That gives me, that gives me chills. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. I think, you know, as we started off the conversation of saying, I think most people's relationship to food and their kids is exactly what you said you're trying not to have. And it's because you fall, oh, yeah, it's and so because you fall into it or because, you know, whatever it is. And I don't want to, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not shaming any parent who's a bite counter or a green vegetable pusher or any of that. I am there with you. I, you know, I think if we had not gone through what we went through, I would be that in that same place. And it's, you know, we all need to recognize like, this is not us failing as parents. This is us. This is a culture that is telling us all the time. We have to do these things this way. And you know, we're just like, it's really hard. How would you even know you're not supposed to listen to it? Like, how, how would you even know your pediatrician's pushing it on you? Like, you know, your mommy group, Facebook, everywhere, you know, it's, it's, 
it's not a simple thing until you're forced completely outside the world and are looking in on it the way we were. I don't know how else you would really yeah. recognize everything that's being thrown at you. So I don't want anyone to feel bad about having a hard time letting go of those things or, you know, I mean, I think the risk of division of responsibility sometimes is it can be mm. its own dogma. And, yeah. you know, my whole thing is we need to get away from dogma. We need to get away from, so, you know, like division of responsibility is very big on you serve the meal you serve and you don't short order cook yes. to all the, you know, to all of your picky eaters, different things. And I totally agree with that in, in theory and most of the time in practice, but if I know my kids had a tough day, do I break out the mac and cheese? Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> that's also part of what normal eating is as well as knowing when people need a break and they need to have a not challenging yeah. dinner. This isn't the night for her to navigate quinoa and Brussels sprouts. This is the night for her to have and mac and cheese. And that might also be the right night coming back to this idea of like modeling. Maybe that's the same night that you have mac and cheese. I think it's also really easy to be like, okay, well yeah. you yes. need, you know, I'm going to make this easy thing for you or comforting thing for you or whatever it is. But then, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to eat mac and cheese. So I'm going to, you know, have a salad while you eat your mac and cheese. And, and I don't want to make, I don't want to say right. that that's like the, no one should ever do that. But I also think that it's really easy to send these messages to our kids that like, well, actually it's, you know, it's bad to eat mac and cheese and you're eating that right now because like I'm giving you a break, but I'm not going to eat mac and cheese right. because, you know, I don't want to get fat or I don't, you know, I don't blah, blah, blah. And oh, that's such yeah, a good I just, I've, I have yeah. definitely, you know, learned to do that. Like, I think there have been times in my life where I feel like, okay, I'm making this generous, beautiful bowl of oatmeal full of all these delicious things, but like, you know, I am modifying it in some way for myself in a visible, in a visibly modified way, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to watch what I eat or watch the amount I eat or something like that. And it's like, our kids pick up on that. They know like mom feels differently about this meal than she wants right. me to feel about this meal. And I think that, that those messages are so, are so obvious to our kids. And, yeah. and, and, and even just yeah. going back to what you were saying about like, you know, where people are at with, how, you know, however they feed their kids or however they communicate with eating about their kids. I think that idea that you've brought up a couple of times now of, of, you know, it's not what's best, it's what's working. You know, if, if you've been fighting your kid at mealtime for five years, like, is it working? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the question I had to ask <laughs> myself. And that's why I got to a point with my son, Aiden, where I was willing to consider something very different than what I'd been doing, even though I felt what I'd been doing was like the right or best thing. It's like, we've been doing this for five years and it like has not gotten better. You know, it's not like, yeah, <laughs> like every meal yeah. is a, yeah. is a, is like a nightmare. So is it working? Yeah. Or your victories are so short lived. You're like those three Brussels sprouts he ate three weeks ago. That's really all I'm posting. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's not worth it. it that, and that's why you you know, getting bogged down in the metrics of all of this is so dangerous because you're then like living and dying by every meal as opposed to like, you know, I can think back over a month and be like, oh, she ate vegetables a handful of times. She ate this a handful, you know, like it all sort of shakes out. And I, I mean, I just honestly don't pay attention to the specifics of it enough, but I can see that she's growing well and has energy and enjoying her life. And so things are working. Um, you know, something else I was going to say, I, I think that's brilliant what you said about like sharing the mac and cheese with your child to avoid that message of, you know, okay, you're getting this, but that's not a good thing to do. Um, something else we do that works nicely is, um, so I basically, anytime I make a meal, I make sure there are at least one or two components of the meal that I know are 
are comforting, safe foods for her. So, you know, some, a lot of nights that might just be like, there's a fruit bowl. Cause she's a big fruit kid and she gets chocolate milk as her drink. And I know, okay, if all else fails, she's going to get those things, you know, or a bread basket is a very helpful way. And so I think if you get in the habit of regularly incorporating, the safe foods, even if they don't fit perfectly with, you know, like I could be cooking curry or something and it feels weird to put like a pile of bread next to, you know, like it doesn't feel like it's like a part of the meal like that I would normally serve. But if you, it's a way of saying everybody in this family has favorite foods. Everyone in this family has preferences and we're considerate of all of that. I think that's a piece that sometimes get forgotten when we say parents are in charge of what gets served. We're in charge of it, but with some respect for who we're feeding and what their preferences and and what they feel good about eating. So you try to provide a meal that covers some of those bases um, without, yeah, without falling into a trap of hot dogs every night or whatever, you know, whatever, like the sort of short order cook version of that is, but just with saying like, this is something, you know, I know there's something on the table you're going to like, and there's going to be other foods that are new and it's up to you what you do with that. And if you're not then checking, oh God, is she just going for the bread basket again? Or is she reaching for the other thing? Like, you know, once you work through a lot of that and rebuild the trust, like your kid will naturally start to explore, you know, they then have that base of comfort and support. And we can't be curious about food. We can't explore if we don't have Mm -hmm. that base of comfort. So getting that that sort of core need met that I'm going to come to this table and feel nourished and satisfied by what's on there is what's going to enable them to get braver about trying all the other things we're, you know, we're hoping they're going to like. And I have really seen that, you know, when I put it into practice. So something else to play with. Yeah. But I, yeah, but I do really like, you know, we also sometimes have ice cream for dinner here because we all like that and find it comforting. And some days that's what you need. And so I think that's, you know, exactly, you know, in that way, it's not a, oh, you're getting this, but I'm not eating it. It's really important to share those things with your kid too. So they can see you enjoying a whole range of foods. I think for, you know, a couple of things that have been really helpful for us as, as my son has gotten older is both, um, allowing him to be involved in planning meals. Like it's, you know, when it comes to that division of responsibility, like, okay, here's, you know, here's what I'm planning for the week, but what are some things you might want to add to that? Or, you know, what kinds of meals would you really like to, you know, to have this week? Mm -hmm. And, and then also, you know, obviously in age appropriate ways, but like having him really be, be, um, involved in the preparation of meals, which changes everything. Like if he helps me make a salad, for example, like he's going to probably be stoked about eating or at least trying that salad, you know, and, and I don't, I'm not making it about salad. It's just whatever it is, you know? Um, right. Right. It's a way to, and I find even if she won't try it at the table, she'll usually try it while we're preparing it. And then she may not touch it once it comes to the table for whatever reason, but she'll, you know, like she now knows she has more knowledge of that food. She has more of an understanding of how that got made and the different components of it. And, you know, and over time that leads to them being more excited about eating it. So yeah, it's all, it's all a long game. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff we, we get bogged down in the day to day, being able to meal and it's really, it's, you know, I'm thinking big picture, where do I want this to go? Um, of, you know, where do I want her relationship with food to go? And so that's, yeah, yeah. I love it. Thinking that way really helps. Well, I'm so excited for your book. I think it's just going to be so incredible specifically for women and mothers who are navigating their own relationships with food and with their bodies, but also really trying to figure out how to translate 
that and to model that for their children, because I think we are just so, so, so lost on that. So tell us a little bit more about your book. It comes out this week. So people will be able to order that on Amazon or anywhere else. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about, about it and kind of what the, um, the theme is. Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's called The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And it is out this week. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, your independent bookstore, everywhere you buy books. Um, if you go to virginiasoulsmith.com, you can also get more about it and um, links to you know buying it anywhere you want to do that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it tells, it goes into a lot more detail with our experience with Violet and the many ups and downs of navigating life on a feeding tube. And then it jumps off into, you know, what does it look like to rebuild your trust with food when you've, you know, really been in the weeds with diet culture for years and years, when you've grown up poor and from a food insecure household where there wasn't enough to eat? How do you know how to experience hunger as an adult if you were always hungry as a kid? Um, how do, I think I mentioned before, um, if you're recovering from weight loss surgery and how that's totally reprogrammed your experience of hunger and what does that look like? And I'm basically asking over and over, you know, how can we get to a better place with food and our bodies and how can we learn to tune out all the external messages from a world that's constantly telling us we don't know how to eat and we're doing it wrong when in fact we were all born knowing how to do it and we can do it right if mm. we just listen to ourselves. I love that. Oh, thank you so much. I love that, Virginia. I feel like those are all messages that we need to hear as women, as human beings, yes. and definitely as mothers. Mm. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much. As women, as human beings, yes. and definitely as mothers. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much. It's really been a pleasure to talk about it with you. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.